0: Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, June 24th, 2021. I am John Putthortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Uh, So a lot of weird stuff is going on in Washington. Uh that all uh, indicates the extent of democratic, emotional, political, and psychological overreach and the blowback from it. Uh, we have, uh, of course, earlier this week, the failure of the voting rights uh, bill or the voting extension, whatever you want to call it, the voting bill, the elections bill, um, that uh, we are told means the, the end of our democracy, that this uh, patently unconstitutional. I mean, much of it patently unconstitutional legislation not passing uh, means that our democracy is over. And we now have um, a very weird political circumstance in which uh, an agreement has been struck among 10 moderates, Republicans and Democrats, on an infrastructure bill. Uh, If you'll remember, the first proposal for infrastructure Involved two trillion dollars in new spending, two tri- new all new spending two trillion dollars. So this this bill, after months of negotiation, the framework for this proposal apparently has about six hundred billion dollars in new spending, um, and removes from the bill all of this stuff that was going to add up to somewhere between two and four trillion dollars. The stuff where we've been joking about how things are now being called infrastructure that are not infrastructure, you know, childcare, this, that, the other thing. Uh, Simultaneously uh, there is a bill moving through. There's a budget bill moving through. And so the question is now that the voting bill has failed, uh, the what the progressives want to do is hitch this modest infrastructure bill to the to the budget reconciliation bill, forcing everybody who wants the infrastructure bill to support the reconciliation bill, which is trillions of dollars. And the idea is that Mansion basically Joe Manchin, the Democratic senator from West Virginia, a third a, a state that Trump won by thirty nine points. Um, and Kristen Cinema, the Senator from uh, Arizona who has become a sort of an unexpected, uh, moderate, let's say. Um, uh, they don't want the reconciliation bill. Uh, the only and so uh, and so what Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader, has said is they have to go together. And uh, the question is whether Joe Biden will disabuse Chuck Schumer of this fantasy uh, that they will go together in order to get his infrastructure bill, or whether he will play along, double down on this, and allow the infrastructure bill to collapse on the grounds that if he does this and he does that, eventually Manchin and Cinema will have to, or Manchin, somebody will have to agree to ending the filibuster so that something or anything gets done and then the Senate can be revolutionized, or something like that. But all of this is a psychodrama. This is all a psychodrama. It all has to do with the overreach, in my view, the overreach of, of the left and imagining that the political circumstances of 2021 lent themselves to $6 trillion in, in new spending. That's my, that's, that, that's my summa of the craziness in
1: Washington today. Yeah, well, so how would, that, how would that happen? How would, like, which happen? <laughs> how would this scenario happen in which you have these bills and they fail and then they, they ask Mansion and Cinema for the 11,000th time when they're going to change their minds and then they finally change their minds. I mean, you're up against the August recess. August recess is in a couple of weeks. Then everybody gets back in September and you face um, <clears throat> debt, uh, the debt ceiling. and budget issues that always takes up the fall and then you're into December and then it's Christmas and then it's 2022 and then it's primaries and election season. When does this happen? Well, it's the yada, yada, yada doctrine, right? That's from, from Seinfeld, right? You
0: say there's a budget bill and there's a reconciliation bill and that people don't want it and yada, 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 the filibuster is, the filibuster uh, disappears. Uh, You don't actually have to explain how they get there from here that's part of the problem for the progressive left is that um, is that they and the and the and and Biden, uh, who I, I think I don't know if it's Biden or if it's Ron Klain as chief of staff or whoever, um, um, they're they're foolish people and they drank this Kool Aid back uh, in the weeks following the unexpected two Senate seat pickup in Georgia to believe that they were in a position to uh, create an entirely new political situation, uh, political, ideological, financial situation in Washington, uh, when they had just barely squeaked through surviving uh, their, keeping the uh, majority in the House and squeaking through to this tie in the Senate that Kamala Harris can break while Biden won the election convincingly, but it was still only four and a half points, uh, and the same number of electoral votes that Donald Trump had won, and nonetheless, this is going to be this entirely transformative presidency on the on the lines of the Johnson and Roosevelt presidencies, in both circumstances of which the Democrat, the party in power, the Democrats had close to a two hundred seat majority in the House. And, and, and in Johnson's case, 68 Democratic Senate seats. And there's Biden with 50 Senate seats and five, a five-seat majority in the house, ha- and he's proposing $6 trillion in new spending. Uh, so I think that was stupid. We weren't sure what it was when it was going on. But I think now you can say... This was stupid. This was a waste of time and energy. And it's put them in a very weird political position where their, their futures are now entirely based on the exigencies of how the economy performs. And the only real thing they've done to the economy is, um, is screw up employment by extending the unemployment benefits until the end of September and thus slow down the economic picture you know, in, in employment terms. So,
2: but it's interesting that you use the word psychodrama to introduce this because we know it's a psychodrama, but it's one that's internal to the Democratic Party right now. Uh, The progressive left is now starting to air their grievances with Biden and the Biden administration more publicly. There's a piece in Politico that says, you know, they're so disappointed that he's not using his narrative power of the presidential pulpit to to act like this is a you know a a crucial issue. You know, all the interest the lefty interest groups are saying, oh, he's just phoning it in while democracy crumbles. All the kind of psychodramatic uh, rhetoric you're used to hearing from these groups, but what was what I took away from that that article, which was interesting, was that he's tried shunting off those groups to Kamala Harris. So the administration basically is like, well, she has a, a meeting or some official in her office is meeting with these progressive groups to assure them of their support. And I think, as we've said about uh, our vice president. Her presence in the midst of a, a, a difficult issue often exacerbates the issue. It doesn't usually calm things. So I wonder if they're going public with their grievances with Biden now, in part because, you know, being shunted off to the VP's office isn't what they had in mind, even though that's typically what what uh, presidents do with their, you know, that the more extreme wings of their party is try to get them to stay quiet. So I agree with you, John. I think they overreached. It, it, was, it is a political miscalculation, but it's also an internal party miscalculation because their progressive wing remains uh, with a feeling of being emboldened. They really do think they speak for with the direction of the country. And there's very little Biden can do to satisfy them beyond give them what they want. They'll keep complaining. But they don't, as you say, they don't, and they can block stuff too, right? They have in the house. They certainly can can get their their coalition is enough to cause trouble, not completely block. But, well, but, but if you, they
3: oh, go ahead. Sorry, well, sorry. I just <clears throat> you know we talk a lot about how um, the the media um, covers progressives and um, the they're sort of um, cheerleading for them and 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 all the rest of it, and and I can't help but think that a large part of this sense of this outside sense of their being in the majority and they're running things and this came up yesterday in, in the AOC's comments about the GOP being a minority um, this is where the press has done them no favors because because they have helped to give them this sense of this inflated sense of their power of their popularity. Of, their, of the sort of inevitability of, of of the things they want to push through, and it's just completely not real. I mean, I,
0: I you know, I was just thinking that this is a, a bizarro world version of ten years ago. Uh, meaning, in twenty ten, Republicans won this you know shocking, shockingly large midterm victory in the House, and had they had had three better candidates in the Senate, they probably would have won the Senate as well. That had to wait until 2014. But they won 63 seats in the House. And they came to Washington with a revolutionary agenda. And the problem with their revolutionary agenda was that it was fundamentally anti-governmental. It wasn't executable with a Democratic president. They didn't want to do anything. They wanted to stop government from doing things. They wanted to reverse policies that had been put in place rather than redirect policy through legislation, which is sort of what you have to do. And so they hit a crisis in the summer of 2011 uh, and shut the government down over the debt ceiling uh, simply because the idea was we have to fight. we got to fight. There's got to be a fight. We've got to fight. And, and as some people at the time likened it to the scene in Blazing Saddles where Clevon Little grabs himself by the throat and puts a, a gun to his own head and says, you know, one move and he gets it, you know, as they're, as they're preparing to lynch him because he's the black new black sheriff of this, you know, town. And he, and he, you know, it's like his only way out is to say, "I," you know, is that, is that sort of gimmick and progressives are kind of doing the same thing when you, Christy, when you mentioned, you know, they can stop things in the House, they can only stop things in the House against the Democratic majority in the House. They have to stand there and say, well, I'm not going to vote for, I will tank this piece of legislation that is a Democratic piece of legislation. There will, there will be no Republican pieces of legislation moving through the House of Representatives, which is controlled by the Democrats, however narrowly. So their own only whip hand is to do damage to their own party's legislative ambitions. Now, you can say that that's Joe Manchin's whip hand as well. The problem is that Joe Manchin so far has voted 100% with the Biden administration on everything, number one. And number two, Joe Biden represents a state that is 40, you know, that voted almost by 40 points for, for Donald Trump. And he is in a very particular kind of position Uh, And in a different body and all of that. And so progressives, a little like Tea Partiers, although Tea Partiers actually had more, I think more of an argument, believe themselves to have all this power and believe that they own the future and and, and all of that. And political reality does not suggest that that is the case. Um, And so they can keep saying it and keep doing it and keep acting like that. And this is where the biden administration finds itself in a in a in a kind of in a weird pickle because uh they he they fell for it they drank the Kool-Aid that he could be fdr now it's clear he's not going to be fdr question is how does he not be carter right i mean the you know the thing is he's now fallen from being the most transformational president in american history by some measures to being you know the biggest flop president the 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 th- the thing that threatens him is being the biggest flop president of the you know of the democratic party of the century where is that you know how how does he how does he prevent that right i don't know and i also don't want to be triumphalist because here's the here's the other thing i wanted to float by you guys which is so there's all this stuff all the spending they did all the spending I, I think this is the key point, which is they spent all this money because of the coronavirus emergency and that kind of broke barriers. And that money has now been spent and committed. And there was too much of it. And there were bad policies that were enacted in the course of it that I think they even wish they probably had enacted. Uh, but that's it. Like there's been this kind of the, 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 the spigots were open and all this money. F- float and all of that. And I just don't think that there's any stomach really for more of it, even if they need to address all these climate change, all all their fake infrastructure uh, things. So they're not going to happen. But there's all kinds of things that they can do that do not fall under the realm of money. That's what happens when you control all the levers of government and particularly the executive branch. And a lot of that are the things that we are most worried about. Because let's face it, are we worried about government spending? Yes is government spending catastrophic? Yes, but in the end it's like a it's the classic problem of 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 governmental overreach there'll be a lot of corruption uh a lot less good stuff will be done you know it'll cost twice as much to build that railroad line as it should and it'll all that's all bad and it's all crowds out there'll, there'll be inflation and all that that's but and that's not good I'm not saying that but it's all this other revolutionary stuff that can be done both by Fiat and by little bits and pieces that's the critical race theory stuff the 1619 project stuff the return to the star Chambers of the Department of Education all of the social advancement of the radical social agenda uh, of the Democrats and 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 the progressives that they can do by fiat practically by Fiat and without any without with very little oversight and it seems to me They will have to in order to placate that body of opinion that Christine is talking about is getting disappointed.
2: That's yeah, that that's where the, uh, the march through the agencies happens. Um, And it becomes, I think it's interesting because in the nineties, uh, the second term Clinton administration had a lot of people in positions of power in various agencies, particularly the Department of Education, who were very effective at that sort of um, behind the scenes, bureaucratic slash revolutionary attempts to change how our system works. And the pushback came, but it came later. But I think in this era with social media and with a lot more, uh, I think partisan investment in things like the critical race theory debate it, it's going to be harder for them to get away with this stuff. And so, uh, John, you sent around something to us this morning that was it, we kind of laughed, but it was sort of the bitter laugh of really, which is people on the left now complaining that parents are filing FOIA requests to get the to get information about what the public schools are teaching their kids and complaining about FOIA requests. Like, how dare they try to find out what we're actually doing behind the scenes? That actually gives me some a small sliver of optimism, which is that regular people are now using whatever they can find to figure out what's going on. And I think there's still this debate about critical race theory in particular strikes me as important because there are a lot of people, a lot of really moderate Democrats who still believe that this is a, a, a um, A figment of the right's imagination rather than something that is actually making a long march through institutions, particularly educational institutions. So it's incumbent on people who are on the conservative side of the aisle to keep their, keep, keep a cool head and explain and argue why this is bad, not, not create a, a, Trump-like conspiracy on the right about this thing, but just talk about it, expose it, show what it does, what it what it's teaching kids in particular, and argue against it. And I, my fear, of course, is that we're going to get you know kind of uh, over the top hyperbole about this on the right that feeds into the narrative that's building on the left that this is just a this is just a right wing creation. But I do think that institutionally, all those equity initiatives, which no one's really examining very closely right now, that Biden announced at the beginning of his presidency are going to have long-term serious consequences. And that will all happen within the agencies and within the bureaucracy. And and it's harder to, to root out the effects of that until it's long past uh, harm. Which, to to
1: what, a great what? extent, the Biden administration is hostage to uh, a lot of uh, Democrats way farther down the food chain <clears throat> in part of you know, this educational backlash, which is real. And, and Democrats are convincing themselves simultaneously of two contradictory things. One, it's a fabrication of... Uh, the Manhattan Institute and the Heritage Foundation, and a bunch of op-ed writers, and all these parents who are streaming into into uh, you know uh, school board meetings have been bamboozled by think tanks, which they follow uh, very closely, and are being led by the nose to this idea, and also. That it's just if there is a Republican backlash and it is organic, then it's just against teaching kids about slavery and civil rights and racism. They don't want kids to know their history. Those two competing ideas are not complementary. They're actually in contradiction with one another. But this is all part of the stages of grief they're working themselves through, trying to trying to convince themselves that what they're seeing isn't real. And second, crime. You had the Biden administration yesterday going off and saying, you know, going, Joe Biden delivering this anti-crime speech, which he focused on guns primarily and all the, you know, their Democratic hobby horses. And the New York Times frames this issue as an expressly political issue. They're attempting to head off Republican uh, attacks on Democratic governance ahead of 2022. That's all it is. Not about quality of life, not about delivering on promises. It's just about sticking it to Republicans but they're trying to thread this needle. They're trying to say, oh, yeah, we're tough on crime. We're going to be, you know, quality of life issues are back. And also we need to reform the police and police are excessively violent. And they need to be hamstrung and and uh, and and shackled and reformed. And that's a needle that I don't think is going to be easy to, elect, to to thread rhetorically. But it's also one that Joe Biden has no control over. He is hostage to Democrats on the municipal level, on the state level. Um, you know, they talked in New York Times, and in fact, talked a lot about how In the event that he wins, uh, you know, Mayor Adams in 2021 will be the exemplar of what democratic governance will look like in that event. Well, nothing's going to happen in the first year, nothing seismic, first of all. Second of all, the notion that Democrats will be defined by New York City has never materialized. It's never happened in the history of New York City. New York City has never been the 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 example of how Democrats govern nationally. In fact, they more more than more than likely to distance themselves from New York City historically uh, than they are uh, to you know demonstrate why this is the wave of the future. So Joe Biden is really just sort of waiting around for the mayors of Minneapolis and San Francisco mm-hmm. and uh, Austin, Texas to comport with the kind of rhetorical deference to uh, to public safety that he wants to see whereas their constituents on the ground want something very different. Well, I, what's interesting about, and very much worth
3: noting here, is that um, the backlash is gaining steam with Trump out of the picture, right? Like, he's there is now room for um, an, an actual and reasoned backlash against Radical policies. Without, if Trump was involved, there would be, you know, uh, he would he would take it. He would take the ball, run with it, say something outrageous, and the whole story would shift to his mischaracterization of the situation and um, all the awful implications of it. Um, This has not stopped uh, progressives from trying to paint every aspect of the backlash against the, the radical policies as something Trump-like, but they're really failing. I mean, you know, the the, the Republicans pounce sort of um, uh, headline has become this tell, this, this really um, 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 obvious sign of weakness in the arguments on the left. Every time they say Republicans pounce, it now means we are in trouble.
1: It has always meant that, though. That was always it. But, it was but, always, but the, the razor is that it was a reflection of Democrats <clears throat> being in a difficult position and projecting that 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 difficulty onto Republicans. But, but because as long they could as never you're... weasel their way out of it, the first time I remember seeing that and, and noticing this phenomenon was the um, Planned Parenthood videos in 2015, um, where they didn't have any sort of coordinated message around this around these videos because they were horrific objectively. So it just had to be Republicans notice. Democratic problems. That's always sort of in the formula.
3: But as long as Trump was there, the Republicans pounce stuff uh, could gain purchase um, because they had someone to pounce.
0: Now you have, um, you have DeSantis pouncing uh, because here, here so uh, there's a new piece of legislation in Florida, uh, a yearly survey of Florida college students at state schools uh, intending to try to measure uh, ideological diversity and viewpoint diversity. Um, this is now being turned into, ah, DeSantis, the new fascist, is mandating opinion surveys on on on, on campuses. Uh, uh, really? I mean, do you honestly and seriously want to claim that the collection of social science data about about the opinions of students at school or the opinions of college professors or something like that is an act of state-sponsored fascism. Um, you know, if the so what what if those what if those surveys were to indicate that you know uh, half the students believed in white supremacy, would that then be d- deemed uh, 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 something of, of no value? It is this. Don't ask. Don't ask any of these questions. You people don't have any right to ask any questions. You cannot say anything about anything. You Any, any effort that you make to come up with hard information that might or might not help the case that you want to make is itself illegitimate. You are pre-pouncing. <laughs> this is well, pre-pouncing
2: but this is a new strategy that actually has has broad appeal on the left and and you can see it in in a lot of areas uh, there's a there's an there's an effort now to kind of measure the learning loss of the past year for America's public s- school students the ones who had to do a lot of distance learning that's been called uh, illegitimate it has it, been you know teachers unions have been arguing that this is going to re-traumatize children to actually assess how much they've lost from this year course we all know why they don't want to assess learning loss you're not even supposed to say learning loss according to some teachers unions Uh, it's too pejorative they don't want to be held responsible for their own actions right their their unwillingness to return to a classroom so i do in the same we see this with standardized testing we see this i mean this is a trend on the left to eliminate the the methods that we tend to use to try to come to some objective sense of what reality is you can't those those systems themselves are either racist or or sexist or whatnot
0: or, or the measure what you're measuring isn't anything that requires measuring for these purposes. I'll give you an example of that. Washington Post homepage right now. So there's a huge controversy in Northern Virginia. Uh, the best public school in Northern Virginia, Thomas Jefferson High, which was a science school in Arlington, in Fairfax County, excuse me, um, was the subject of one of these. They wanted to lower standards and change tests and all this in order to make the classes more diverse. And people said, Oh, great. There's one good, one good public school in this entire County and you want to ruin it like stuff that's going on in New York, this uh, magnet school. So here's the story in the Washington post that just came out after admissions changes, Thomas Jefferson High will welcome most diverse class in recent history, officials say. Prestigious magnet school Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology will welcome the most diverse class of students in recent history next fall, according to data released Wednesday by Fairfax County Public Schools. The class will include more black and Hispanic students than any class admitted in the past four years. It will include fewer Asian students who have historically made up the vast majority of admitted students and a larger percentage of female students but the biggest jump came in admissions offers to economically disadvantaged students meaning students who qualify for free or reduced price school meals okay nobody on earth has ever thought that if you did if you changed the standards rules that you couldn't get more a more diverse class that goes without saying that's not the question the question is what is the outcome going to be and, and the question is also, there are fewer Asians. Really? There are fewer Asians? What Asians didn't get admitted? And for what reasons did they not get admitted? And why, who was given pride of place in place of the Asians who didn't get admitted? Were they Would they in other years have been admitted because their test scores made them admissible? But in this year, their test scores don't weren't good enough or didn't count as much? You are de-Asianizing a school and you refer to it in the third paragraph as though that is not some form, if you'll excuse my use of this term, of ethnic cleansing. I mean, again, so what you're saying is, here's what we want to measure. How diverse is the class? Here's what we're not going to measure. What effect that has on the school and on the people who are harmed by the decision to make this the thing that is socially desirable. And with that, let me talk to you about Made In. Made In, how does your favorite restaurant consistently make such delicious food? The short answer is they have access to the right kitchen tools. Made In's professional quality cookware and kitchenware uh, makes anyone capable of, of cooking and presenting restaurant quality food at home. If you're serious about cooking, you should invest in your kitchen tools. Maiden's cookware and kitchenware products are used by thousands of the world's best chefs. I got a pan from Maiden. I made an omelet. It was fantastic. I don't make good omelets. I don't know what role the pan played, but I'm willing to assign an enormous amount of credit to the pan that it was exactly the right shape, size. And 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 coding and everything like that that made it possible for me to actually make an edible omelet. And that's because they sent me uh, one of their their, their cookware uh, offerings. So if quality and craftsmanship is important to you, you should check out Made in, a cookware and kitchenware brand that works with renowned chefs and artisans to produce some of the world's best pots, pans, knives, and wine glasses. They source the finest materials and partner with renowned craftsmen to make premium kitchen tools. Available directly to you without the markup. They're made to last. There's a lifetime guarantee. The cookware distributes heat evenly. Maybe that's why the omelet was good and can easily go from the stovetop to the oven and their knives are fully forged, perfectly balanced, and stay sharp. 28,000 five-star reviews. Products used by some of the world's best chefs at Michelin-starred restaurants around the world. Made in better cookware for better meals. If you're listening to this podcast, you're in luck. Right now, before June 27th, Made in is doing its only sale of the year through June 27th. You can get industry pricing. That's right. Industry pricing, the same price they give Michelin star restaurants that buy in bulk up to 25% off site wide. Go to madeincookware.com commentary and use promo code commentary for 25% off your first order. That's madeincookware.com commentary. Use promo code commentary.
2: Can we can we just spend one more minute on on Biden's crime non-speech? Well, we haven't we
0: haven't spent any time on Biden's speech.
2: (laughs) Good, because it drove me nuts, as you know, I I was uh, texting wildly. I mean, he did what is totally predictable, but there is there is something new that I think Democrats in general are going to try to push. Um, And he he flagged it when he said in his speech that he. One of the things that his administration is doing to fight crime is to encourage local, uh, local municipalities to use money from the federal, from the rescue plan legislation, uh, and spend it on better policing. Of course, then he, his, his example of that was to say, you know, more, more, um, non law enforcement type efforts that would help the people who law enforcement tends to target. So it's a, it, he didn't want to say defund the police, but the idea was, look, we're sending all this money to cops, but, to reform them and Val Demings picked up on it she's been a tougher on crime democrat and she previews well, she the message she was a
0: police chief she
2: was a police chief she's previewing the message that I think Democrats who are on, in in tougher uh, districts and and states are going to say which is well republicans oppose this we funded the police they claim to care about cops but this and I don't think anyone is going to buy that i i mean it's a very it, it's a it's kind of a complicated argument she's making she's not entirely wrong but he said nothing in that speech about why are progressive prosecutors releasing criminals back on the streets to recommit crimes. Why are let's look at hate crimes, let's look at who's committing them and who's the the, the prime target and victim of hate hate crimes in this country are Jews. He didn't say anything about that. He didn't say he, he didn't say all the things about quality of life type issues that we were talking about on the podcast the other day. There was nothing reassuring to someone living in an outer ring suburb of a city whose crime problem has spiked uh, to reassure them that the Democrats who run those major cities and the Democratic president cares about what they are fearful of. Nothing. Nothing. I mean, dealing with people who sell guns, as Noah said earlier, that that's just a typical Democratic response to crime that has nothing to do with the increases in homicides in this country.
0: Um, we have to talk about something else in relation to this speech uh, that my, my my friends and colleagues at the editorial page of the New York Post have made uh, m- made a point of this morning in an editorial called "Is No One Going to Mention How Confused and Out of It Biden Was?" If you watched him yesterday, that was a very worrisome performance. Everybody, I think, who is listening to this podcast knows. I do not subscribe to the Joe Biden is senile argument. You know, I said from 2019 onward, people were underestimating him, his abilities, his performance in public, his performance in the debates and all of that, like and that and that there was a very easy way people are going, oh, look, he's senile and all this and all that. Uh, That was a very strange performance yesterday, and it was a very worrisome performance uh, the Post points out that he called the uh, ATF, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Farms, the AFT. Um, he, he said some bizarre thing about how, you know, if you're one of these Second Amendment people who believes, you know, in the blood of patriots, you're going to have to get an F-15 and a nuclear bomb because you can't stop government uh, unless you have a nuclear bomb. Like it was some weird, off-the-cuff, bizarre senioritis moment uh couldn't pronounce the word cognitive um oh yeah here's what he said quote those who say the blood of patriots you know and all that stuff about how we're gonna have to move against the government if you think you need to have weapons to take on the government you need f-15s and maybe some nuclear weapons uh really uh you know and um, he's apparently
1: been saying that for several years Really, it's like a, it's a stock line that he uses, yeah, for gun rights advocates to disabuse them of the notion that <clears throat> they could protect themselves from a tyrannical government with their firearms. It's a dumb line. It's a false line. But no speechwriter writes it for him. It's just uh, something he likes.
0: No, no. I assume no speechwriter wrote it for him, but I think in the total right. Okay, so it's I also didn't know that.
3: And, but go it, ahead. Well, it, it's also um, a, a bad line, um, you know, in terms of the ideas behind it, because. The 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 implicit message is you cannot protect yourself f- from
1: a tyrannical government no matter what. Yeah, it's very silly. Right. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people yeah. <clears throat> yesterday were poking holes in this argument, noting the hypocrisy of it. Considering we're ceding Al- Afghanistan to a bunch of people with Air Fifteens, which he says are in- insufficient to retake the levers of power of government, even though they are. And the same people, you know, he's one of these people making this arguments, even though in the same. Breath, he'd suggest that the entire United States government was about to fall to uh, you know, a, a band of agitated rioters in January. And these two arguments are incompatible with one another. It's just, it's a dumb line. I don't know why he says it. He just thinks it's clever, but he's very infatuated oh. with it because he's been saying it since 2018, 2019. No,
0: it's a, it's a totally bizarre line because of course the whole notion of uh, having uh, taking up arms against um, a, against a, a government to protect yourself uh, isn't that what you're trying to do is have a coup and over and overthrow the government? It's more if you really want to follow the scenario scenario through it's it's what if a corrupt cop uh, you know decides to come into your house using the imprimatur of the government to take money for you know like steal from you or you know steal from your restaurant or something like that. Or wants to, you know, like the the government uh, sees wants to seize your house because they whatever. It's not about the the whole the whole notion of of being the sort of person who can protect themselves against government. Isn't that there should be an effort to overthrow the to make a coup
1: against the government. Um, but uh,
0: and, you know, it was, Or yeah. that the
1: moral authority of the government is jeopardized by the excessive use of force, which is where that authority is derived from the consent of the governed and to the use right. excessive force, as is in the case, for example, in Waco. Right. Um, that sort of moral authority erodes rather rapidly. It's, it's not a very well thought out premise. And uh, just one more thing about it is if you are an insurrection type,
3: the line is kind of a challenge it's it's you totally know, yeah you're you're saying did you hear what he said we are not nearly armed yeah enough. we're not
0: armed enough yeah. exactly yeah where do i get me an f-15 <laughs> right well, you know you i know, better get me a nuclear weapon
2: you know but you know the word that he I, correct me if i'm wrong but i don't think Joe Biden in a in a much touted crime discussion yesterday ever used the word criminal did he use the word criminal i mean he used like bad so. guys or you know he doesn't say the word criminal at a time when crime is you know violent crime is spiking in this country and people are obviously concerned about it there's a reason for that and i again like mr straight talking lunch pail joe that actually was his strength as a as a presidential candidate was to sort of say I'm going to cut to the chase I'm going to tell you what's what and it's very appealing but now I don't whether it's because he's you know I mean look he as to the cognitive question he's coming off of a of a uh, international trip I don't know if that like if his recovery time for that sort of well, it was presidential a week ago. I yeah but you know a week it, ago. I mean I look, agree. I was disturbed I by by look, his performance. He's very inconsistent in how well he is able to uh, uh, publicly discuss his administration's policies. Um, but right. if those inconsistencies continue and get worse, you know, that is worrisome.
0: No, yeah, but look, I thought he was really good at the press conference in Geneva, uh, you know, after the – I mean, I thought he right. was very – coherent and fine and all of that i'm just saying um so my alarm at what he looked like and sounded like yesterday that does not come from a place where i am looking to think yeesh you know he's looking old and like he's out of it and he doesn't know what the hell he's talking
3: about that's not my bias but but you know we have to sort of pick a theory here at some point about his cognitive ability you know and you know so it It looks to me as if um, uh, without, you know, um, excessive preparation, which is always bizarrely talked about and and puffed up in the news, like that's a good thing, without that excessive preparation, devoted time to sort of study, get ready for an event, um, this is his default mode. His default mode is to be a little weird, um, a little mumbly uh, to go off the reservation to, to to sort of you know do some stream of conscious consciousness t- uh, 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 speaking. Yes, he can prep to give you those solid moments, but those
1: are outliers Right. or just <clears throat> just personal interest. He's really invested in foreign policy. He's terrible at it, but he loves it. He really likes yes. foreign policy. Always has throughout. Well, he likes crime career. too. And he can speak extemporaneously on complex matters of foreign affairs and statecraft really uh, lucidly when he's talking about domestic issues like crime, which he really doesn't care about. And was burned on a long time ago. I don't he's agree. on autopilot. That's why he. That's why he says this. These sort of stock lines that he was using on the campaign trail. He's just sort of waltzing through this thing half awake. I don't. I don't buy that. He was chairman of the judiciary committee.
0: He was the author of the 1994 crime bill. He is the inventor of the drug czar's office. Uh, he was f- much more invested in matters of criminal justice at the beginning of his career than he was in in, in anything else. Um, I I just think that it, he the one possibility here is that, um, is that he doesn't know how to talk about the issue anymore because Democrats don't know how to talk about this issue anymore. Um, because uh, they're tied, they're tied up uh, in knots, having having committed themselves to a, a line of argument according to which um, law enforcement um, is now kind of guilty until proven innocent, in their eyes, and therefore, if you are the chief law enforcement officer of the United States, uh, you're kind of in a weird position. Uh, because you're a Democrat and you're the chief law enforcement officer of the United States, and you should be defending, uh, you know, the rights of law enforcement and the and the importance and virtues of law enforcement, and that line is not something that that progressive wing we've been talking about likes in any way uh, whatsoever.
2: Well, and and th- it's notable if you if you notice media coverage of of Biden's uh, 1994 Crime Bill. It now often includes a a little caveat that's always attached to it saying experts say these experts are not usually identified. Experts say this bill led to mass incarceration. So the phrase mass incarceration is always plugged in there because it gives cover to Biden now when he talks about crime, but the point of course, and this is why it upset me that he wouldn't, he didn't talk about violent criminals. He talked about abstractions that are gonna be dealt with with federal money that'll be spent by who knows what doing violence interruption. The problem of course, is that on the left, the, the, the idea about crime is that there's too many people in jail for offenses that they shouldn't be in jail for. But if you emptied state prisons of nonviolent, which hold most prisoners in this country, if you empty the state prisons of nonviolent offenders, you will still have a very large population of people who have to remain behind bars because they have committed violent actions, dangerous assaults, rape, murder. These people are dangers, dangers to society. And you can argue all you want till you're blue in the face about root causes. And there are very important arguments to be had about that and what the state can do about that. But that is a separate issue from whether or not an individual who committed a brutal rape or a brutal murder should be out on the streets if and how we measure rehabilitation and how we do that. That's actually what I wanted to hear from him. If you're gonna look at look to the Democrats or the or the left for new ideas about crime prevention, let's hear them. He had not a single new idea. It was all the same old, same old.
0: Um guys. We're we're back to having to have that daily, nearly daily conversation about about the the X chair. Gotta to talk to you about the X chair, because, you know, let's face it, we know, you've heard me say, you've heard me say time and again, it's the luxury supercar of office chairs. I'm sitting in one right now. That dynamic variable lumbar support is offering me unbelievable lumbar support to my lower back. And we called it something else before. We're calling it something new now, Elamax, which has that heat and massage therapy and cooling now. Imagine regulating your body temperature and getting massage therapy while sitting at your desk. X-chair Elamax cooling delivers heat and massage th- technology directly to your core, increasing blood flow, muscle recovery, and energy, and four different massage modes and fast warming heat to your sore back. You won't believe the X-Chair difference until you feel the X-Chair difference for yourself. And the prices are going up on July 11th for the first time in two years. So beat the price increase and go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com. Or call one 844 4 x chair to save $100 off your order. X-Chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. Go to xchaircommentary.com now and use code Xwheels for free Xwheel blade casters xchaircommentary.com. Um I'm now going to say I'm going to do something that you're not supposed to do, but I feel I'm compelled to say it because I've been watching this all morning. And I something very uh, weird is going on, and that's why I want to I, I want to talk. So this building collapse in uh, Miami Beach. Um, have you seen these pictures? So this this uh, giant condo building with two wings. One thirty in the morning or something like that. One of the wings of the building collapses completely. Pancakes, much of it. Slides down, looks like uh, Christine. You said it looked like Kobar Towers in 1996 in Saudi yeah, Arabia. That, the
2: images reminded me immediately right. of that,
0: right? Um, there's all this like it's a catastrophic building failure, all of that. Something I'm just saying, something went on there. This was not a naturally occurring event.
2: I will say just just for those who don't know this about Florida topography, it's basically Swiss cheese. You know, there's like the 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 ground upon which anything is built in Florida is is uh, you know building on sand. You know the metaphor. Uh, so it is it is you know we have sinkholes, we have all kinds of crazy ge- uh stuff that happens because of the, the sort of limestone Swiss cheese, like aspect of Florida's topography. So that is a possibility that shouldn't be okay. ruled out. I mean, I don't if, know if what I'm talking opens, about, yeah. <laughs>
0: I don't know what I'm talking about, but it sure looks like it, it happened from the roof downward. It doesn't yeah. look like what happened happened because something happened to the foundation. It's the entire side of this building and half of it, not the whole building. It's half of the building. Uh, something untoward went on there. And if, if it didn't, that's going to be very surprising to me. I have no idea what what that means. But um, you can't just look at that and say, oh, man, whew, gee, that's a building collapse. Like, we've never seen anything like it that, that did not have an exogenous cause. So, um, uh, you know, the fact that the other half of the building is standing there, God only knows what that means. Um so uh, I I want to move on from that I don't even I just brought that up because it's like scratching at the back of my head but I wanted to read a good a good email we got about about vaccinations uh from a guy um in California named Cameron uh because I think it's interesting because people got you know mad at me yesterday I did this whole thing about how I'm going to blame you if you didn't get vaccinated and there's a variant surge, uh, in the, you know, in the fall or in the winter, quoting the Godfather. Uh, a lot of people were sending me longer versions of the Don Corleone speech that I mangled yesterday. So, uh, thank you for that. But, um, Cameron writes, I thought you'd be interested in hearing my story about finally deciding to get vaccinated. Over the last few months, I made the decision that I didn't need to get vaccinated. I'm 40, I'm healthy and active. My kids are young and healthy. Everybody around me who might be at higher risk is vaccinated. In other words, I saw no benefit to getting the vaccine for myself. If I contracted COVID, I would pose no health threat to people around me, and it wouldn't have a serious impact on my own health. Furthermore, contracting it and developing a natural immunity seemed to be a better safeguard than a vaccine anyway. Um I'm very bothered by your assertion that I decided not to get the vaccine because I'm afraid of needles. That's a childish and insulting reduction of a nuanced decision. You've talked about the COVID vaccine in terms of the vaccine for smallpox or polio. I support those vaccines. However, I put the COVID vaccine more in the category of chickenpox or the flu in that the cost-benefit analysis doesn't convince me at this time in my life that I need to bother with them. Unlike smallpox or polio, COVID won't be eradicated by the vaccine Despite how miraculously effective the COVID vaccine is versus the flu shot, getting the vaccine feels superfluous to me. You have suggested that my choice not to get get the vaccine is keeping you locked down. I disagree. The government is keeping you locked down. We've learned that it never should have done it in the first place. I guess what I'm saying is that I fail to see how my choice impacts you in the least. In fact, every time you have made absolute statements about people who aren't getting vaccinated, it has convinced me further that I don't want to get a superfluous vaccine because I was bullied into it but I live in California. Last week, Cal OSHA ruled that employers didn't need to require masks for employees who have been vaccinated, but those who haven't still need to wear masks. That's stupid by itself, but the insidious part of their ruling was that employers need to document which employees are and aren't vaccinated. I could lie, but that seems a stupid thing to compromise my moral standards for. I was faced with a choice. My wife and I debated all weekend what to do. We chose to get vaccinated, and my first appointment is tomorrow, but I do it resentfully, I'm not against vaccines. I'm against managing them, mandating them and publicly shaming people for not getting them when the cost benefit analysis for individuals doesn't merit the pressure. It bothers me that there are people maybe including you, who will cheer that this pressure persuaded me to get vaccinated. Okay, uh, this is a very, very, very uh, well reasoned um, argument, and uh, I will blame uh, I, I will no longer blame Cameron if the variants cause a, a, you know, a second, a a big wave in the fall because he is getting vaccinated. But I would have blamed him. And I want to explain why. Because COVID has killed 600,000 people in the United States. Let's go back to March of 2020, when the lockdowns first happened. What was the fear? What was Trump's fear? Trump's real fear was that 200,000 people were going to die. It was the idea that 200,000 people were going to die that led him to agree to the initial federal lockdown prescriptions. Three times that many have died. 600,000 people. This is not smallpox. This is not polio. Um, in fact, because those diseases have been eradicated, there is a real debate over whether or not people should still be getting. And in fact, I believe most people do not get the smallpox vaccine anymore, or a lot of people don't, because it has been so thoroughly eradicated. We're not doing this to eradicate. With the idea of vaccines, is not to eradicate the disease. It is to prevent the person who gets. The vaccine from getting the disease, the ancillary virtues of vaccination, meaning that over generations, you could eradicate something like smallpox, which apparently was the single deadliest disease in human history. And the fact that it has been eradicated is one of these unbelievable miracles of our time and our century that people do not celebrate enough. Um that's actually a secondary concern. You're not doing it. it, We didn't create mandatory vaccinations or vaccination regimes about this because you said, you know what? 40 years from now, we can eradicate smallpox. It was people get smallpox and get really sick and then they give it to other people. And I'm glad that Cameron thinks that because he's got relatives who are vaccinated and his kids are young and his wife is whatever, that they won't give it to each other But that doesn't mean that he can't give it to somebody in an elevator if they get trapped in an elevator for 15 minutes or something like that. He can. It's not going to give it to him from surfaces, but people were getting them in in enclosed spaces with other people in the room. And I'm sorry that he's resentful. And I didn't say that he was afraid of vaccines. He is making a cost-benefit analysis for himself. That is his right as an American. That doesn't mean that his cost-benefit analysis is morally correct. He wants I, to Frankly, say, I
1: think his cost-benefit analysis is incorrect. Okay, go ahead. Uh, <clears throat> so far as he believes that it's unjust, for example, for there to be a suggestion, not even a mandate, that individuals who don't get vaccinated in the end, but nevertheless, the midst of a global pandemic, should mask up in public. Because there's a stigma associated with that sort of thing. Well, yeah, correct. Exactly. Finger on the nose. You got it. That's the point. And yes, you will have to endure some um, conditions that you might find disagreeable based on your life choices. That is the cost-benefit analysis you're subscribing to, whether you, want it, whether you like that or not. And you shouldn't like that because the idea is, is to make this uncomfortable for you. Um, there's a reason why California, your state has a, a annual whooping cough problem that no other state in the country has to deal with. Think about it for a little bit. It's because a lot of people are making a similar cost-benefit analysis to you, one that I find inexplicable, but nevertheless they're making, and there are consequences associated with your actions. And, yeah, you have to endure those consequences. That's called personal responsibility. And if you're an adherent to that philosophy, then, yes, you have to endure those consequences. You've chosen this course. Congratulations. Now you're going to have to endure what the state determines is, and the state can determine this. It's not It's John, you said federal lockdown when Trump uh, went that direction. There really was no such thing outside of federal premises, federal property. Right. It was state level, municipal level decisions. Well, and CNI- um, which and are supported, CBC by guidelines. the way, which are supported by, as we from every all all the evidence we have, all the all the polling data we have, all the electoral analysis that we have that that are supported by most of the public. And if you don't like how most of the public is voting, then you have the option of leaving. Or if you don't, you have to comport with those determinations. So while I'm very, I'm very libertarian on a lot of these issues, I've side with freedom more often than not. And personal responsibility is part of that. But you have to assume the consequences of your actions and the consequences of your actions far and above imperiling the people around you, which is possible, um, is that you're going to have to shoulder a little bit more of a burden than people who determine that it is their responsibility to get vaccinated and rejoin society as a result.
2: And there's, I, can I add that the, the, the question of how much a, uh, like local, state, local, or federal government, uh, how much power they have to make these decisions is going to continue into the fall at the local level with schools here look if you look at cities like dc vaccination rates for kids 12 and over are it's very very um segregated by ward and by race so there are some wards in the city where most of the middle school and high schoolers have gotten vaccinated and others where almost none have including where many adult vaccination rate levels are super super low And they're unlikely to get that to that needle is not going to move much over the summer. So come fall, when it's time to go back to school, the fearful, the parents who are fearful of vaccination are also fearful of returning to school. And they will demand, as they did before, of the school system that it protect them and their children. So they can't they have to have the option of being at home. And the teachers who work and live in those wards have made those similar demands and the union has backed them. So this. D.C. is an outlier and crazy town when it comes to schools. Obviously, we were like 50th in the nation in terms of getting kids back in the classroom. But on a small scale, these these debates will continue to happen. And if enough people use their fear and as a lever against their local government and the local government caves, we're going to have this problem. The reopening will always be uh, half hearted and hobbled by that those group of fearful people who refuse vaccination.
3: I think we were... Oh, go ahead. I was to say, you know, so there's one group of anti-vaxxers that I think is, you can rightfully call um, delusional because they, whatever theories they subscribe to, the, among them is that um, the vaccine is not actually um, reducing the instances of infection, right? That it's not, it's not really working, it's fake, it's not... Um, the the our, our writer here, letter writer is not one of them right he's got he's got another set of, of concerns but even so if you're not delusional and you do believe that the that while you don't want to get a vaccine, we it, the vaccine has nevertheless resulted in the complete um, uh, dropping of of the numbers of infection and, and is getting us out of this pandemic nationally. Why would you want to spout off about, about why you don't want to get a vaccine? You 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 have to recognize that it is helping your life, whether you get it or not. It is helping the life of the country, whether you get it or not. Um, there's not much to be angry about, is my point, in, in terms of not getting the, the vaccine. So fine, don't get it. But um, if everyone made your cost-benefit analysis the way you do, we'd still be in the very the very middle of the pandemic and we're not because they're not doing it. So there's something wrong in your cost benefit analysis just in terms of that.
0: Well the whole cost benefit analysis is based on other people his cost benefit analysis is based on other people getting vaccinated. Exactly. So that that's right so that that's the ultimate problem. The other thing is by the way that if you don't want lockdowns and you don't like lockdowns fundamentally uh, being a person who walks around saying, I don't want to get vaccinated, not that not that Cameron isn't getting vaccinated because he is getting vaccinated, uh, gives power to the very officials that you don't like who are going to want to do a second lockdown. They're going to say, look, I don't want to do a second lockdown, but all these people aren't getting vaccinated. And this is going to cause a, a this is what's going on in England and in Israel right now. We're going to have to lock down again because not enough of you are getting vaccinated and we need to prevent the spread of the Delta variant here so if you don't want it that's also a reason to get but complaining about getting vaccinated and about lockdowns and about masking is just saying who are you to tell like me this. what to do
1: but <laughs> this, None of this stinks no,
0: and we all think True. it stinks we all think it stinks that has nothing to do with it and i well, that's don't an important point like, briefly that the no.
1: self-set metrics these states have used to get out of lockdowns are vaccination rates so that right. they can't weasel out of their own metrics at which point they have to get out of this thing, otherwise they're right. accused of hypocrisy, and then the authority that they derive from the government disappears. By the way,
0: Anthony Fauci said that you can do whatever you want on July 4th, which I think is a, is is interesting because, of course, there's a whole purge movie about how it's July 4th, so everyone is allowed to kill anybody <laughs> they they want to kill. So I think that's another eighty year old guy who is starting to is starting to say things that maybe. You know, suggests something about eighty-year-olds uh, talking a lot uh, too much uh, in public, like his uh, like his now boss. Um, with that, we will uh, bid you adieu until tomorrow. For Abe, Christina, Noam, John Podhoritz, keep the candle burning.